Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today, a slightly different program from the usual in that we're going to be speaking with someone who long-time listeners to TMR kind of have some slight experience of without probably knowing it, because Bob Purse, who we're going to be chatting with in just a moment, is the composer of the music that begins and ends each session of the Nephilim Boys here on the programme each New Year's Eve. And uh, a few years back, I found Bob's music on the Free Music Archive, which he kind of put up there for people to use, people like me to use, of course, with appropriate acknowledgement and all that, of course. Um, And I found a song that I thought was absolutely perfect for that particular show, the Nephilim Boys. And uh, then earlier, I think it was earlier this year, Bob got in touch with me, curious, of course, to find out how somebody like me had stumbled upon his music. And uh, then several email conversations later, here we are today at long last. Bob Purse, thank you very much for coming on. Welcome to the program. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. It really is good to be speaking with you after all the attempts we've had to uh, connect with each other over probably months, uh, because we seem to have been missing each other with our emails for ages. Just busyness, I think. Was it just busyness? Yeah, absolutely. I, I Something gets off the front page from my email, and then I go looking two months later, and I'm like, oh, I never answered that. <laughs> yes, and I did the same sort of thing. Um, anyway, we're here at last, and uh, hopefully we're going to be talking today uh, with plenty of musical examples about your music, your own music, because, of course, you've been composing songs, um, not just songs, but mostly songs, humorous, not all humorous, but mostly humorous, surreal songs and other instrumental pieces for many, many years, decades, in fact, and mm-hmm. uh, putting some of those collections out there on the internet for people to enjoy and benefit from, Uh, but also your lifelong hobby, if I may call it that, of uh, collecting old recordings, fascinating old recordings, and making at least some of those available via your couple of websites, which I think has been going for quite some time now, and I want to chat about those as well. Uh, But first of all, Bob, let's talk about you. Could you tell us just a little bit about yourself, what you do, where you are, your background, that kind of thing? Okay, well, I'm uh, 59 years old. I live in Arlington Heights, Illinois, which is just north of O'Hare Airport, northwest of O'Hare Airport. Always lived in this area. I've never lived more than 10 minutes outside of Chicago, but I've never technically lived in Chicago. Um, I work in the mental health field. I was a crisis worker with children and adolescents in the inner city for 13 years and then have remained with the same agency for the past 13 years. Beyond that, uh, in a variety of management and supervisory positions, and I'm now the uh, director of training and performance improvement at that same agency, which is called Ada McKinley, and it's on the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. You're saying you work in the mental health field. I'm just wondering whether the surreal nature of your compositions is one of the ways of sort of keeping yourself on the level. Uh, <laughs> kind of hard to say. I think I think it's more a result of the comedy that I was exposed to as a child and the comedy that I created with some friends when I started making my own recordings as a teenager and young adult. I see. Now, the first song I want to ask you about, um, before we really get on to talking about the collections of music themselves, is a Sailing Milk Moustache, that particular (laughs) song I used uh, for the New Year's Eve show, so people will know that one. Um, Although, actually, I suppose not everybody will. If you're new to TMR, this is uh, a Sailing Milk Moustache, just a little snippet from it, so you can get some sort of idea of what Bob's output is like. Oh, 
Okay, well, as you see, there we are. A very, very amusing song which caught my attention was ideal for the show. So I'm going to ask you, Bob, could you tell us about that song? What's going on with that song? (laughs) It might be a little bit of a long-winded answer, but when I was 15, I reacquainted myself with a friend of mine named Andy. He and I hit it off much more so than we had the first time we'd known each other, which was when we were around 12 or 11. And we discovered that we had a whole lot of overlap in our sense of humor, in our tastes in music, and in our general way of looking at life. And for whatever reason, we started doing recordings where I would play piano and we would improvise things. We would make up songs. We would read things out of songbooks and make up our new melodies for them, all sorts of things like that. What came out of that, and I'm not quite sure what the process was, was that I started (laughs) writing my own songs in the style of the sort of improvisational nature that he and I had been starting to improvise. Mm -hmm. And over the course of, I would say, about six months, I wrote three really stupid (laughs) songs, all of them coincidentally with titles that have to do with food, but actual lyrics that have very little to do with food. Uh, One of (laughs) Sorry, Uh, ideal. One of them was called Peanuts in the Sun. I think that was the first one. There was one called Elbow Macaroni, which actually was about Elbow Macaroni. And then A Sailing Milk Mustache came out of that trilogy, and it had by far the stupidest lyrics. <laughs> Didn't have anything to do with anything. <laughs> I, at the time, I, we we borrowed a machine that did sound on sound, which was a cheap way of doing overdubbing. And I made a version of it back then, which was probably when I was – I was born in 1960, so this is probably 1977. I'm 17. <laughs> and I made a version yeah. of it then, and then probably completely forgot about it for 20 years And then in the late 90s, when I was actually trying to put together an album's worth of songs, for whatever reason, it occurred to me to make a version of this song. And I'm like, I cannot sing these lyrics. They are the dumbest thing I've ever written. I just mumbled them. (laughs) Well, I actually love the way, as you say, it's not anything to do with anything. I think that's what attracted me to for for that particular show. It was was absolutely ideal. (laughs) I noticed, you you know, you're saying about food, but some of your songs seem to be about anatomy as well. What's the connection between food and anatomy so much in your output? (laughs) Ears, noses, and eyes, and things. Oh, you know, nobody's ever asked me that, and I never really thought about it. My (laughs) writing process is very, uh, I don't know what the word for it is, experiential. I just kind of, the song is kind of there, and it channels through me, and I write down what comes to me. Why that is, I don't know. Stream of consciousness. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are times (laughs) that I have an idea, and I'm driving somewhere, and I'm pulling over every four blocks because I thought of the next line. (laughs) <laughs> oh, great. Well, of course, we're going to be speaking lo- loads and loads of your music later on. Uh, let's turn to your collection. In fact, your collections, you have two major sure. online collections. The first one that I'm more familiar with here is the one at, uh, well, it's called The Wonderful and the Obscure. This is to be found at bobpurse.blogspot.com, which is your massive collection of old recordings that you've been collecting over the years. I think the website itself goes back to 2005, hundreds of recordings, maybe thousands, I don't know. Tell us about those recordings. What sorts of things will people find if they visit your site? Well, nowadays, they'll find primarily song poems. Uh, And song poems are unknown to the general public. There's a Hmm. small group of people who know exactly what they are. Um, yeah, tell us what song poems are, because I didn't know, okay, actually. I so, had to go to Wikipedia to find out. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Mm. Uh, well, the concept goes all the way back to the days when there was only sheet music. And essentially, at that point, it was, if you send us your lyrics, we will put them into song form and help you get a hit. Right. You know, we'll print up 50 copies of your song as sheet music. But by the time the records were a commonality and the price was was right, I'd say in the 40s, there were companies that 
would say, send us your lyrics. Hmm. They were trying to reach people who might not even know what the word lyrics meant. So they literally used the word song poem. Uh. Send us your song poem. We will set it to music and record it for you for a fee. And then we'll work to promote it and make you a hit. Trying to tap into either people who simply wanted a vanity recording or more likely did not understand how the music industry worked and thought that somebody would set your words to music and actually had a chance to make your song into a hit. Mm-hmm. And you would get copies of the 78 in those days and within a, a decade, the 45s. The business really took off in the late 50s and flourished until at least the 80s. It still exists. You would find the ads in the back of tabloid papers. Um, I don't know if this business exists in, in England or other parts of the world. It, it strikes me as a very American concept that anybody can be a success in any field if they try hard enough. And by the same token, a very American idea in that we can get people to send us a whole lot of money for something that is absolutely never going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I certainly picked up that from what you said about it, that uh, you sort of have a love-hate relationship with this material. Well, the, the, the thing is that as the business went on, as it started, people were actually putting out records that sounded like it, it, they were done by people that were professional and that were working hard on them and at least wanted to make a record that sounded like something you might hear on the radio, even if the lyrics were ridiculous and even if there was no chance of it being a hit. When you get into the 60s, you find a lot of companies that were truly just scamming people that are putting out yeah. material that has you know a three-piece band playing chords changes that they've seen for the first time five minutes ago and a singer who's reading the song for the first time. Oh. Now, the thing is that there's two different aspects of this that are sort of wonderful if you're into it. Number one are the car crash ones where there's absolutely no explanation for why this exists besides what I just described to you. You know, you've got a song called A Fat Man in a Compact Car. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. or, or or a song about a well no, I'll come back to that one um, okay. or else you've got people that actually <laughs> captured lightning and really either they really worked hard on something and made something good out of it and the person actually had some talent mm. or they made something interesting out of something questionable and it's fun uh, such as a song called Shankarinky which I enjoy which is uh, a, a, a little ode to the two-year-old in the house. And they, they, it's basically accompanied by a drummer who goes pretty much berserk in between the, the verses and then drums and, and, and guitar with the guy singing these very cute lyrics about the kid. But there's only three verses and they're all like four lines long. And they with this drum interlude, they managed to, to – just stretch it out to about a minute and 45 seconds. Oh, you, you, you must tell, is that one on your website? It is. If you look over on the links on the right to Tin Pan Alley, it will be in there. And it's Sorry, can you remind me what it's called again? I think it's called Chinkarinky or okay. Chickarinky. Obviously, since it's not actually a word, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. And then there was a fellow by the name of Rod Keith, who is considered the king of the song poem artists. And he was what they say was a keyboard genius and a musical genius. And he would make productions that were beautiful and interesting, and he really gave his all. Even if he was doing 20 of these in a week, he would manage to turn out decent material and sometimes otherworldly material. The first label he worked with was called Film City, and rather than have a band, they had an instrument called a Chamberlain, 
Are you familiar with the Chamberlain or the Mellotron? I've heard of the Mellotron. They're essentially the same instrument. There, there was some right. some sort of hinky stuff that went on when the when the machine was taken to England, and it ended up in a different company with a different name. But they're essentially okay. the same thing. Probably the world's first sampler. Right. It had strips of reel-to-reel tape that had sampled instruments on them. Ah. Um, if you can picture the sound at the beginning of Strawberry Fields Forever, the flutes, that's a Mellotron. Ah, okay, yeah. There were backing uh, combo tracks, and there were backing drum tracks, and you could literally set it up to say, I want this backing track, and I want to switch it from this chord to this chord to this chord. And I think essentially the Mellotron was mostly meant to be flavoring, but Rod Keith working for Film City would create entire backing tracks, and the only instrument on the track was the Chamberlain. Right. And would make most amazing tracks, and also because the Mellotron didn't always line up with itself after about a minute, you would start hearing things where the drum track is at a different point in the beat than the rest of the backing track. Well, that's interesting, because I've noticed that on your own music, where you seem to have a beat that doesn't fit anything else. Is that an influence there, do you think? It's possible. I I think (laughs) the biggest influence on me on song poems is actually Rod Keith's keyboard playing, which I think has influenced some of the things that I do when I play solos. But it's certainly possible. I hadn't thought about it. Mm. You've no doubt heard my uh, song, The Year of Large Jeans. (laughs) I have. Okay. Yes. And there's a bunch yes. of, there's a bunch of soloing at the end of that. And I did that track I think about a year after I discovered song poems. There is no way I would have played that solo if I hadn't been listening to Rod Keith records. Uh, well, I think actually we'll have a little sample of that. Is that okay? That's fine. That, that really jumped out at me when I heard that. It's, but you start pretty much growling. I, um, I, I recorded the entire backing track, and then I waited until I had the opportunity to record first thing in the morning when I hadn't spoken or had anything to drink yet, and then turned the pitch control up so that when it got put back down, my voice was even deeper. That's how I did that. Okay, well, let's, let's hear a little bit of that. trying to think of the guy whose voice that reminds me of um i was born under a wandering star who was it who did that the film star oh oh yeah yeah, yeah. um oh. i love that record yeah so do I. oh can you think who it is oh yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of westerns wasn't he oh uh-huh. that's not who i was thinking of oh right uh-huh no it's um i mean maybe there's more than one version yeah the version i'm thinking of actually kept let it be by the beatles out of number one in england I say? Yeah, I'm looking at it as we speak. I was born under a wandering star. That one, yeah. (laughs) It's Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin, that's it. Yeah. That's who I was thinking of. He was in Westerns, wasn't he? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I I don't think he ever sang besides that song. (laughs) 
<laughs> doesn't surprise me somehow. Yeah. I like it, but it's a one-off, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I love about that song is that it's absolutely opposite my personality. I, I, I do not track mm. anything that that lyric says. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's about as far away from my my worldview as you can get. But I, but it's I a very that. it's a very strange uh, recording, but I enjoyed it very much when I heard it. Do you keep all of the recordings that you have? By the way, you must have so many thousands of them. I once estimated that I probably had somewhere in the neighborhood of ten thousand records. I never actually counted all of them. In recent years, I have started divesting myself of those that were potentially saleable or that I just didn't want. And I, I do a lot of selling on eBay of stuff that I've had for 35 years that I haven't touched since the first time I played it. Hmm. So that's a change. If you'd asked me that five years ago, I probably would have said, yeah, I got everything. <laughs> <laughs> so when people go to that particular website, then they will find these song poems. I think you have Song Poem of the Week. There are hundreds of those, but there are other recordings as well, aren't there? Um, and yes. with each recording, you have some commentary that you've put there and also the, an image of the record itself, the 7845 or whatever it is. Right. Very beautifully done on the website. Um, so what other sorts of things you've got there? Okay, so I think it was in my early 20s that I started really getting to look at records and say these are interesting a friend of mine uh, named tom and i would go to a record store in evanston which is not far from where i lived at the time uh, it's just north of chicago and there was a store that had what they called the dime bin and the dime bin were, rec were 45s that the owner had not been able to sell and as it sounds like everything in it was one was a dime 10 cents and once that had been picked over, he would sell – it was a garbage can. Uh -huh. Once that would get picked over, he would sell the entire dime bin for 60 bucks. And Tom and I would <laughs> yeah. chip in and pay the 60 bucks, take the records back to Tom's house and pour over them, listening to the ones that we found interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's – I think that's when I really, really started finding oddities and falling in love with bizarre little releases that were on labels nobody's ever heard of or things that never got close to the top 1,000, let alone the top 100. And there were two sales in the Chicago area. One of them was what's called the world's largest one-day rummage sale, which as far as I know still happens in a church in Winnetka, which was also down the road from where I live. And I would go there and pick over their stuff and get anything that looked unusual. You know, uh, recordings on this right-wing record label called Key of people from the early 60s making screeds against Kennedy and against socialized medicine. Home-produced records, things that weren't available besides to whoever decided to hand it out to their friends. Uh, the best find I ever got in any of these things we're going to be talking about was an album called Musical Memories of Camp Brynaven, oh, which yes. remains one of my half dozen favorite albums ever. I will come back to that one in a minute, actually. Yes, Are you indeed. familiar with this? Well, um, I, you have that one online, do you, to listen to? It's on probably on WFMU or maybe on the 2003 365 Days Project, which I was also part of. Okay. You can definitely come back to that. Mm. Uh, yes, I will do. So around the same time, this is 1985 when I was uh, – 83 to 85 when I was going to that sale, I became aware of a sale that had existed for several years without my knowledge, which was called the Mammoth Music Mart. This was held in Skokie, which, again, is just in all in that same area. All these towns are five miles apart from each other. And it was to raise money for Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And imagine a large Catholic church and being inside it. And instead of the church, what you have are tables and tables and tables of recorded items, boxes and boxes of LPs, smaller boxes of 45s, boxes of 78s, stacks and stacks of reel-to-reel -reel tapes, instruments, sheet music, and I would go there four or five times 
that's when I started really getting reel-to-reel tapes. Yeah, that must have been the holy grail for you coming across that. Yes. Because, of course, your fascination with reel-to-reel tapes goes back a long way, doesn't it? Right oh. back to your your very early days, because there's a picture right. on one of your websites of you. I think you're six years old. Yes. Dead cute. Remind me of my own son. And uh, <laughs> you're looking remarkably like him, actually. And there you are on the floor <laughs> with your face almost in this uh, reel-to-reel tape, and you're obviously fascinated by something. Could you tell us something about oh, how all that oh. started off, such an early age, reel-to-reel, sure. back in the 1960s? Okay, so this is genuinely difficult for anybody that was born in the last 40 years to understand. But there was a time when most things were not recorded. Hmm. And there was a time before that when people did not have anything with sound connected to their families. They might have eight millimeter movies that were silent, but few families had things that were recordings. When I was a little kid, my family was the only family I knew that had recordings of things that happened in their house from before I was born. I was born in 1960. My, my sister is 10 years older than me. My dad bought one of the first commercially available reel-to-reel machines in 1952. Like I said, that set things apart. Nobody else I knew had a reel-to-reel machine when I was really little, and those that had them when I was a little bit older didn't have what I had, which was this behemoth thing that weighed 60 or 70 pounds that went at a faster speed than the machines later on went and held enormous reels. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. My, my family continued to record. I have I have recordings of me singing songs when I'm three and a half years old. I have recordings of my sister at two and a half singing Christmas songs. And when I was 14 and 15, over those two summers, I listened to every one of my family's tapes, which was 120 or so at that time, and cataloged everything. Where is everything on our tapes? That, I think, instilled in me a lifetime interest in recordings, particularly recordings from before I remember times, for example, like 65 and earlier. And once I discovered that people were actually selling used reel-to-reel tapes that were home recorded, I bought like a fiend looking for media recordings from the 50s and 60s, people's home recordings, audio letters, Mm. all all that sort. Yeah. Yeah. You see, that's what I find fascinating about this. You describe this interest that you have in other people's recordings as voyeuristic, (laughs) but not in a negative sense. And I I think I know what you mean. Uh, You say um, it's an interest in what other people's lives have been like. You're interested in the the specialness of other people's experiences. Um, Can you explain more of how that works? It's it's obviously nostalgia as well, but how does that work for you? And and I think also you were asking me before if some of my career in in the psychology field overlaps with my ridiculous lyrics. I think it's much closer to the sociologist in me that Mm. that there's more of an overlap with the fact that I'm interested in what may have happened in people's families to the fact that I ended up in psychology. Mm. That's a side note. Um, I just find it fascinating. I find hearing people talk to other people in that era about things that were going on in their lives is interesting. I find the tapes where somebody is interacting with a child endearing. I just listened to one this past week in which a two or three year old, you know, still learning to talk, keeps doing something that causes the, the recorder to feedback and it cracks the kid up every time. That's adorable. <laughs> That's adorable. Mm. I, I certainly think part of it is for me the fascination with things that happened in an era that I can't remember. And I, I don't know if I can put a name to that or a reason to that. 
Um, when I find stuff that's of a similar sort that's from the 70s and 80s, I don't have nearly the same interest because I lived through those periods. Yeah. Something just beyond your grasp. Yeah, sort there's, of, a, there's a bit of a psychologist yeah. in hmm, I'm thinking of sort of a, a romantic sensibility where it's there and it's intriguing, but you can't get to it because it's when it was there, it was real and it was tangible and it's now just beyond the grasp. I think I know mm-hmm. the sort of thing. I tell you, I had this conversation mm. with, a, with a friend of mine uh, who has experienced the same thing. I walk a lot mm-hmm. in my neighborhood in the evening or whatever and exercise and just to get out and stuff like that. And yeah. when I go by a house where the living room window is open in particular, and there's not somebody in there, but I just, it gets me to thinking, I wonder what the life in there is like. I wonder what those people are like. I wonder what they enjoy doing. And I'm not voyeuristic. I'm not going up and looking to see who they are. It's just yeah. when I can actually see the home and it's exactly what you just said to it's just out of my grasp. I'm not going to know. I don't mm. need to know, but I just wonder, you know, you know what? I wonder what life is like in that house. By the time I'm done thinking of that, I'm a block away and it doesn't occur to me again. But yeah. I think that springs from the same place. Yeah, you had to use the word voyeuristic, but I know it's got negative connotations, but you don't mean that. I, I think I know what you mean. And in fact, I was really struck by something you said coming back to the uh, the music that you found. At, I think it was the Mammoth Music Mart, this uh, musical memories of Camp Bryn Afon. Is that the one? Yeah, that was actually at the world's largest rummage sale. Oh, OK. Yeah. <laughs> got the wrong one. Doesn't um, anyway, no, no, no. So this is uh, I think it's a camp with a lot of girls singing or something, isn't it? And uh, you, you said that you're captured by this particular recording. And you describe it as an aud- the auditory and musical experience of the meaning of life. Can you even begin to capture what that means? The auditory and musical experience of the meaning of life? I don't remember writing that, actually. You did. You did. Yeah. I did. Yeah. I, I'm sure I did. It. Boy, oh, boy. Uh, yeah, sorry. That's a difficult it's, question. No, I've, I've, heard, I've heard a half a dozen recordings recorded at camps. Mm. And a couple of them are really nice and sweet and have tracks on them that I will return to again and again. On the musical memories of Camp Renovin, every now and then you could literally hear animals outside. There's an echoiness to it that gives you a sense of where they are. The biggest difference is that the people that ran that camp chose to take songs that were in the public domain or that were popular and everybody knew and rewrite every single one of them with lyrics about the camp itself. Mm. There's songs about daily life at the camp. And as I listen more and more, I realize there's a story being told here. It took me a few years before I really, really listened carefully beyond the first few tracks that had had captured me and to the point where I fell in love with the whole record and heard enough in the lyrics to realize that I could probably figure out where this camp had been. And I actually visited it. Hmm. And several years after that, when I was on the Internet, uh, I got a hit for a Web page for people that had gone to the camp and wrote to a bunch of them and got a bunch of history back and actually started put together a booklet and a CD of the album, which I then sold at cost to the, the people that were interested oh, in yeah. it. Quite a story behind that. So, Okay, well, let's return back to the uh, the real to yeah. real. You say that you did a lot with that in the in the early days. So did your brother, Bill. I think he's a little bit older Bill. than you. Yeah. So you did a lot of experimenting together um, with sort of pre-echoes and all sorts of weird things. What kind of things did you do? Bill is six years older than me and a, truly a musical genius, which is not what you asked. But he got in his head to do lots of different things. And he, I, I am I obviously worked with a lot of families. I've worked with a lot of kids in various different things. I don't know that I've ever seen a set of siblings where one is six years older than the other and does nearly as much with the younger one that my brother did with me. Mm-hmm. He wanted to entertain me pretty much nonstop, it seemed like. We had a tape where we just flipped through the uh, the radio one day in 1970 and kept making funny comments on whatever had been said. Him doing probably the lion's share of them because I was nine. 
he set up two machines next to each other with the same reel of tape going through them so that we could record something on the first one. And then when it got to the second one, it would play back what we recorded and we could comment on it and make some sort of a loop thing going on. We borrowed a machine that did that, that sound on sound I talked about that, that was the early version of overdubbing. And, and by that point, he was really into his musical abilities and, and made some amazing songs. We would record together all the time. Um, somewhere on that WFMU yeah. block, there's a recording of us uh, singing songs together. No, maybe it's on my site. Oh, wow. There's a recording of us singing songs together right after we got our first stereo reel-to-reel machine mm-hmm. with me in one corner of the room and him in the other. So we're like very far apart stereo but singing together. It was 1966. <laughs> I think that's, that's lovely. on my Inches Per Second site. Okay. The Inches Per Second. Yes, that's the one with the reel-to-reel, isn't it? Yeah. That's inches-per-second.blogspot.com. I'll put that, of course, okay. in the notes as well. So this is the reel-to-reel collection you've got yeah. there. Actually, it would be nice to hear a little bit of you and your brother singing. Yeah, yeah. We can do that, I suppose. Yes. One, two, ready, go. I've been working on the railroad. I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. I've been working on the railroad just to pass the time away. See, Bobby's singing a mono too. This is he sounds funny. So early in the morning. Captain Triadin, Dinah, blow your horn. Dinah, won't you blow your horn? Dinah, won't you blow that horn? Dinah, won't you blow your horn? Sometimes we catch you with Dinah. Sometimes we catch you with Dinah. Sometimes we catch you with Dinah. Strumming on. And that's the end of the song. That's the end of the song. Yes, that's the end of the song. Goodbye. Yeah, so obviously you picked up the experimental habit there from those collaborations with your brother. And uh, um, I told you I'd be doing some lame segues here to the music, and here's one of them. Uh, I wanted to uh, talk about the actual collection, the actual album later. But let's just pause to listen to one of your pieces of music here, which is really experimental. This is, well, it's not a song. um, It's an instrumental track. It's track three from your collection called A Few More Plans. Um, (laughs) It's called A Few More Plans itself, um, uh, which you you describe as sort of as crazy experimentation with a MIDI keyboard. Um, We'll hear that, and then I'll ask you what prompted that. Okay.
All right, pretty strange uh, with all those musical quotes and things going on there and the Amen, plagal cadence at the end. Uh, what prompted that weird piece? Very effective piece, but very strange. For about two years, I was in rock and roll bands when I was in my early 20s. And near the end of my time in that band, I wrote a song called Plans, which had lyrics that rivaled a sailing mustache for the stupidest things I have ever written. I'm told that we tried rehearsing this song and that the rest of the band thought it was genuinely stupid. I don't remember actually doing that, but a friend of mine told me that we did. I don't know. So it lay in a book with my other lyrics for 20 years. I decided to try to make a version of it. And the first version was what you hear, what you just played, minus all the musical quotes in those middle sections with me actually singing the, the lyrics and, again, mumbling them because they were so stupid. I thought, this is ridiculous. I'll just put something else in there and make that interesting, <laughs> right. and it'll become an instrumental. And I changed the title to A Few More Plans, riffing on the fact that there already was a song called Plans, which no okay. one knew. Yeah. yeah, great stuff. We'll get back to your music in a minute. I just want to go back to your life story just for a moment, because it was a really... Obviously, a very significant person called Uncle Harry in Memphis uh, seems to have been a key influence on you. You sort of helped him out with his recordings, his studio tapes, and then he's kind of set you on the road of collecting as well, didn't he, and to some extent? Tell us about Uncle Harry. That was my mom's oldest brother. He was 17 years older than her and sort of figured into my life more as a grandparent because my grandparents, well, but one died before I was two years old. Um, I didn't think of it at that time, but he certainly filled that role. He would visit a lot. He was kind of a the Southern gentleman. Uh, I believe he was a salesman in his full-time job, but what I knew of him was that he was a part-time promoter of jazz and knew a lot of the jazz people that were in the world during the, the late 50s and, and mid-60s. Louis Armstrong, is that right? Yes, he, he met him a few times. I think he yeah. he, he promoted uh, – oh, who is the – there's an English trumpeter that was big in the early 60s that came over here and had some hits. Um, Kenny Ball. Oh, yeah. Kenny Ball, yeah. yeah. Kenny Ball promoted a couple of concerts with him. And he was as full of life as anybody I've ever met in my life. He was very boisterous, very loud, very um, joyous man. And we went, my mom and I went to visit him for a week in 1973, spring break, I think. And he had some recordings of a song that he had written the lyrics for, and he had the session tapes, but they were at a speed he could not play on his machine anymore. The speed of 15 inches per second had gone out of favor by that point for home machines. I told him I knew how to get them into a stage that he could listen to using two machines, which I won't go into here, but it's something that I learned how to do because we also had tapes that ran at that speed. Hmm. So his prize back to me was these session tapes. He said, as long, you know, now you've put them onto a tape where I can hear them. Now you can have the originals. He actually gave them to you to keep. Yeah. He, he gave me <laughs> session tapes from yeah. a recording session of an actual single that came out. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was the that, coolest thing. Absolutely. Yes. I can see why that, how that helped to give you the bug of collecting. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Well, um, oh, let's turn to your collections here. So you've got, do you call them collections or albums? What would you say? My collections. Um, sure. Yeah. So you've got one here that you say you completed in 1986. You've got another one you completed in 1987, another one you completed in 1988. And then we're going to be talking about the fourth one, which uh, is The Many Moods of Bob, which you completed 1997, so much later. And then also your fifth collection, A Few More Plans, which was between two, 2000 and 2017. <laughs> All right. I know you're, you're reaching to say something, but let me throw the question in. How come you did so much so quickly in the first few years and then there have been all these gaps since? 
once I got the bug to start recording my own songs on a regular basis, which was, as I think you said, is 1986, I was still living at home. I was 26. I was working full time and dating the person that the woman that would become my wife. And there's a lot of free time when you have no responsibilities besides going to work every day. I didn't have any bills to pay. I didn't have this. I didn't have that. And I was starting to write songs. And my dad bought a new reel-to-reel machine and gave me his old one, which I put in my room and started using to record overdubbed songs. And I was able to record three sets of, let's say, 40 minutes worth of music over the next three years. And then that finished in 1980, in the the fall of 1988, six months after I got married. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That makes complete sense. Yeah. (laughs) Life becomes more complicated. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then I first daughter in 1991, second daughter in 1993. And I, between 1988 and 1994, 95, I think I wrote one or two songs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. So we're going to talk about the many moods of Bob. Just before that, there's one called The Pineapple Den. This is a song that you sent me uh, because you said perhaps it would have been maybe even a better one to choose for the Nephilim boys as a a drinking (laughs) song, effectively. Um, It's got a lot of voices in the chorus, but you tell me they're you. Is that right? They're all you? No, they're not all me. They're me and ah, two friends ah, of mine. Um, ah, okay. Again, this is a bit of a road trip, and I, I, I feel bad that I've gotten this far without mentioning this already. I, I mentioned my friend Andy and the fact that we did tapes for some time. But in the midst of that, I met a guy named Paul. And Paul's one of my one of my closest friends of my life. Mm-hmm. And he and I started making improvised tapes, very, very heavily influenced by Monty Python and things like that, and very quickly moved them from doing sketches off the top of our head to doing songs off the top of our head. Both he and the other guy, Andy, are much more creative with words and images and ideas than I am and are capable of going off on tangents that that you would not believe. While Andy and I kind of stopped after about five years of doing these every now and then, Paul and I recorded dozens of tapes a year until he went off to school and then when he got back we were we went back to doing six to eight tapes a year for literally decades and at one point i think in my 1986 1987 he was away at school or he he was living somewhere else for a while and we wrote letters in those pre-internet days and in one of the letters i wrote him the lyrics to that song off the top of my head when you talked about school presumably you mean what we would call college or university yes yeah yeah, yes okay yeah. yeah sure Sure. Anyway, so within probably a year of writing him those lyrics, I decided that I wanted to put it to tape. And I believe he had moved back by that point. And he and Stu, who I've already mentioned, are my two closest friends. They sang along with me and did all the little comments in between during the instrumental sections. As I say, it's a a long road trip, but I can't talk about musical life without mentioning that I've made literally probably 120 improvised tapes with Paul. Yeah. Now, the actual musical side of it is entirely yours, is that right? Yes. So all the harmonies, the sort of music hall sound of it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's all and your that sped input. up piano thing in the middle, um, that's sort of a tribute to the sort of thing my brother did back in 73 when we had that sound on sound thing. He made a bunch of tapes where he played intricate solos lower down on the piano than sped up. And that, that sounds a lot like the tapes he made back then. Over and over with sin. 
wondrous pineapple den of a genre that time has erased so we'll never play hopscotch again talk about the many moods of bob okay so yeah. um well both of these collections actually how would you do you have a way of characterizing them very random diverse <laughs> when i mention to people that i have something that i think they'd be interested in and i certainly don't tell everybody i know that i do this stuff <laughs> i just refer to them as comic songs because i don't yeah. i don't have a more specific category that fits everything from a fairly straightforward musically straightforward piece like Southside sam and something like the Year of Large Jeans. There would I don't know that <laughs> yeah. you would listen to those two things and say this is the same person. <laughs> no, indeed. Um, all right, what about this title? This is number three off the Many Moods of Bob. Okay. The Man Who Licks Your Ears. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excellent title there. Immediately attracted me to listen to that one. I was not disappointed when I heard that. Um, a real vamp, jump, 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 with, a, with fanfares and nonsense lyrics. Go on, then give us the story about The Man Who Licks Your Ears. I think there's going to be less of a story here than you think, and, and hopefully you'll be impressed, actually. I mentioned just now, I gave you the long story about my improv- improvisations with Paul. That song came out of me in real time during one of my sessions with Paul. Oh, right. I changed one word. So that, and that, we're, we're basically listening to, huh? we're essentially listening to improvisation at that point then. Right. I mean, I, I put all the trumpets and the flourishes and like that on there, but on the original tape, it's me playing piano and improvising that song. And I think I changed one word. Ah. Lovely. When I'm on fire or whatever you want to call it, that's that's <laughs> what I can do. I can I can come up with something like that. 
And as I said earlier on, you have this sort of anatomical theme going on, because you've got the man who licks your ears, and then number two is my eye, and then number five is your mouth is a house. Okay. Um, okay, so first of all, my eye, which is track number two. Uh, this seems to be about an eye that seems to, in a, almost like a, a Dali-esque sort of way, have a life of its own, pluck out of your head and then rove around the countryside or something. Tell us about that one. This is quite a different style, isn't it, actually? Well, no, it's, it's funny because that's the other song on the album that came out of a direct improvisation with Paul. Aha. That one is word for word what came out of my mouth off the top of my head. Oh, but it's quite a different style, isn't it? It's almost <laughs> quite hard. It's bizarrely quite heartfelt, yeah, yeah, yeah. even though I, the, the lyrics are such nonsense. Yeah, I, I, I played it up. I put in that like sort of Barry Manilow build up with this. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, but that's yes. not on the original. Yes. But, but absolutely, and then and, I, and of course I put a pipe organ setting, if I remember correctly, on it. Isn't there like a solo by a pipe organ? I've, I think I've lost is. track of that one in my mind. Yeah, we'll hear it. Uh, listeners will hear it now. Uh, is there something like that in the song?
This is quite impossible to describe your music, isn't it? You have to listen to it. You really do. I mean, what about Hammerwell Jack? I mean, what? I, I don't know how to categorize that at all. I mean, it's, like, it's got elements of modern jazz in it. It's got a sort of trumpet solo duet. It's atonal. It's quite dissonant. But well, you sort of hold it together with yeah. a repeated chord and a beat. It seems to work. It's bizarre, but it works. <laughs> I don't know if you read the notes that came with that album. I'm not sure they're still available. But I think in the in the credits at the bottom where I talk about who played what and who did what, it says that all the different instruments I played, and then it says, and regrettably, trumpet on. <laughs> yes, yeah, I can see why. Although in a strange way, because of the context, it works, because it's all so surreal. You just listen to it, and it, it's all part of the amusing background to the piece, you know. Notes on his back, owns what I lack. trombone from fourth grade to a year after I graduated high school and my brother was a professional trumpet player so we had I have his old trumpet and I still have my trombone so those were real instruments I was playing um you've asked me about two songs and I was unable to give you any great explanation because I improvised them this one I dreamed and that's happened several times I woke up with that chorus in my head did you really Yes, I, yeah. and I don't know what hammer wheel jack means, but here, here's the thing, and I could say this about most of my songs that were not based on improvisations. If somebody gives me an idea, I'm not real good at coming up with an initial concept, but if one is handed to me through a dream or a friend of mine says something funny, mm. I will run with that and, and come up with a three or four minute song based on it. Mm. Once I had that hammer wheel jack chorus, I wrote that whole song. Well, absolutely, because there's one that's, this is in your other collection here that we're going to talk about. Your brother Bill had a nightmare, and you wrote a really, a really short song about that. In fact, it's so short, I I was quite amazed. I thought, oh, is it over already? Uh, This is It's Monday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, so in the house we grew up in, for a long time, there was a spot in our dining room where a cabinet opened up, and there was no bottom shelf, and it went all the way down into our crawl space. It was just a little section there, but it always intrigued us, and it was always kind of weird, and eventually our dad put in a a full bottom shelf instead of a half bottom shelf. I don't know why it was like that. But he came to me, I was probably somewhere between six and eight years old, and told me that he'd had this nightmare 
where monsters came out of that hole and sang that song that you were referring to, and at the end lunged at him and ate him up. <laughs> they actually monsters sang the song to him. That is so bizarre. Yes, that was the whole story. Yeah. And then at some point, I was recording some stuff that I wanted to send to him for his birthday, probably 2003, 2004, whatever date I put on it for that recording. And I, I brought my friend Paul in and both of my girls, who were then you know grade school age, and had them sing the song with me. Oh, fantastic. All right, so this is off the collection, A Few More Plans, which you were doing up to 2017. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first introduction I had to this was a track called Things I Need to Know, which is number seven of that collection, which you presented to me as a kind of gospel-style song, has that typical question and answer, you know, the soloist sings something and the choir responds. And I thought, of course, it was actually a choir that was on there. But I think you say that that choir is all you. Is that right? Yeah, there's. I think there's nine vocals in there, and they're all me. Um, it's not gospel, though, is it? Well, I mean, the style is gospel, yeah. and that was on that was on purpose. Yeah. Uh, but what about this? What was Liberace's favorite pie? I don't know. How do toaster ovens work? Who invented antifreeze? <laughs> so- when is the Denver Post delivered? Why don't you ever blow your nose? <laughs> What's the gray stuff in the sink? When will clowns become extinct? <laughs> all good Give us an explanation, Bob. <laughs> I still have an email because I. This is the way I save things. Sometimes when I get an idea. I might send it to somebody that I know and then I'll print it out as this is something to work with. So I have an email from, I think, 2001 or 2002 when I wrote to my friends and I said, I have this idea. The guy's going to be singing a gospel song, but it's going to be about all these stupid questions. And then the choir isn't even sure what he's singing about. So they're giving different answers. I had that idea so long ago that I wanted my mom, who was a professional soprano, to sing the top parts. And by the time I recorded that, she had been gone. She'd been dead for probably eight years. Hmm. That's how much longer before that that I actually had this idea. Isn't there a recording of your mum somewhere on the reel-to-reels that you have, singing something, I don't know, a Christmas carol or something? There's a recording of my sister on Christmas morning of 1952, and my mom sings very briefly, but it's almost entirely my sister. Again, on the on the wonderful and obscure site, when she was sick and then when she died, I put up some stuff of hers, but those are posts where the tracks have become lost by the meltdown of the place that was hosting them. Okay. Anyway, so at some point down the line, I wrote the entire song. I would still say that was probably 15 years ago. And um, there was a period when I did not have a keyboard that worked. And then I didn't have a program that worked because the computer died. So it took me until I got a new keyboard and a new program to record the keyboard with and a new program that would allow me to do multi-tracks on a computer before I did that. And then over the course of Christmas break from work two years in a row – I recorded all those backing vocals. I was walking down the road, down the road, down the road, carrying a heavy load, such a heavy load, questions weighing on my mind, on my mind, on my mind, answers are so hard. Cheese, baby. 
In fact, that and Around the House, I think probably my two favourite ones off your collection here. You say it's inspired by 1930s Calypso records. Uh, it's the lyrics which really just make me laugh so much. I mean, it seems to be like there's this neighbour using your bathroom because he's lying about the bathroom being broken next door and you've got an older sister cooking something with potassium, keeping ferrets and kicking her foot against the wall or something and your grandmother practising archery and there's this odd uncle in the woodshed and nobody seems to know what he's doing. It's very, very odd. Is this a reflection of your own family life in some way? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Are you familiar with the 30s Calypso music from Trinidad? Not the specific fad, if you like, but yeah, I know what Calypso is. Yeah, sure. Calypso may be my favorite singles genre within uh-huh. things that have been popular of the 20th century of anything. Uh-huh. And the Calypsonians were always trying to top one another with the number of words and, and complexity of the stories that they were telling within the things that they were doing. So I was trying to pay honor to that and also do something that was a bit funnier than they might have done. Um, there's one that I particularly love by a guy who went by the name The Lion that starts, what causes indigestion is the stomach, oh, causes indigestion is the stomach, condestined under abnormal conditions. <laughs> so you get, you, just, just hearing that, you can understand where I came from in trying to yeah, kind of capture that. My neighbor's in the bathroom. He's been coming over since last June. He says his John is busted, but I don't think that he can be trusted. He keeps on loudly singing Billie Jean, and he can't really carry a tune. 
Pantry, her latest project's almost done. She's counting every item which contains too much potassium. Yesterday she spent six hours pretending that her ferret has magic powers. Tomorrow she'll start kicking the wall until her foot goes numb. Archery skills With a razor blade tipped arrow She's holding her prescription pills Oh so often I have heard her cry Oh why did Russ Colombo have to die When she's done she spends at least an hour Imitating Beverly Sills one here that I've got to mention about is Look Who's Here. This is a different style. It's slower. It's bluesier. Now, you say this is a kind of takeoff of John Lennon and Bob Dylan. I did go to those two tracks that you mentioned, and, and I certainly could hear the links with John Lennon, Steel and Glass. I mean, same key for a start. Um, you describe this as one of your kitchen sink songs. Do you want to tell us what that is? Yeah, I will occasionally, or maybe sometimes more than occasionally, come up with an odd phrase or turn of phrase that I think would work well in a song and eventually I'll end up with a whole page of things like that. Um, there was a song on the, on the many moods called it's not a regular day. And there's a line in there about the goat having an enormous toaster. That was a phrase that just struck me as funny. And I'm like, I've got to stick that into a song somewhere, somehow. Yeah. Who's here? Exactly. Another one of those, you know, you're, you're selling, uh, selling chimpanzee art. You sit in a cart selling chimpanzee art. That that was probably something that I just wanted to work into a song somewhere. 
<laughs> and when I have enough of them, if I can if I can find some sort of common theme, I will fit them into a song. Uh, you can take this either way. I, I'm a huge fan of Randy Newman. He's one of my half dozen favorite artists ever. And he, of course, takes the first person and just presents that person's view and sings a song as that person. Okay, and you never get the sense that that he's being disingenuous, that this is somebody who knows that they're an idiot or that they're a racist or that they're whatever, but that, that's just the person. In my case, I can't tell you whether or not the person who's singing is out of his mind or he's singing about somebody who's out of his mind. Yes, you've said that many times. Yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> oh, dear. About any of my songs. Mm. There's one called Eat at Joe's, again, which is about a, going to visit a family that's clearly bonkers. But on the other hand, you could say, well, this person's clearly making this up. He doesn't have a friend like that. <laughs> it's got to be one or the other, because those are the only two options. <laughs> this is the surreal quality that comes throughout. I mean, you've just been talking about a goat and a toaster and chimpanzee art. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to have some sort of slider to go with this show. And I'm thinking, I need a goat and I need a toaster and I need a chimpanzee and I need an artist or something. Uh, an illustration for the show. But I don't know how I'm going to find that. Um, well, thank you ever so much, Bob, for coming on. It's been a fantastic delight to speak to you i don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to add obviously we'll just uh, sort of end with talking about your you know how people can get to your websites and things but is there any other song or anything major that i i missed out of asking you do you reckon i'm sorry i got distracted the phone was ringing say that oh, again yeah i just wondered as we're coming to the end whether there's anything that you really wanted to share with us that i've neglected to ask you about or any particular song that you'd like to uh, talk about that i missed off oh gosh <laughs> there probably are i i i don't think so i mean i i um I love I Was Fine. Nobody else seems to like that one, but that just knocks me out for some reason. It's it's completely – it's the one – it's it's completely by, by guitars and ukulele, and it's got this off-kilter soprano ukulele solo. It's all about being slapped by um, yes, Walter lovely. Cronkite and stuff like that. Was it the one where you said everybody mentioned all this song was alive at the time? Yes, you deserve a blow to the head by Mister Rogers. Things like that. Yes, I, I really liked that. That one, that one did not go over as well with my friends and my and my siblings as a lot of my other stuff do, and I I was disappointed by uh, that because I thought it was, I was certainly amused by it. Yeah. It's, it's certainly it's a woozy recording. It doesn't. It's anyway. Okay, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think I think we're good. I really appreciate the opportunity to do this. Good, yeah, it's been great speaking with you, indeed. Um, and I just want to direct people to these. I did mention, so this is your reel-to-reel site, this is Inches Per Second, and your song, poem, and other recordings site, which I thought was your main one. Perhaps it is your main one. Yeah, it is. Uh, I post there almost every week. Bobpurse.blogspot.com. Okay. Uh, that will go in the notes as well. And you've also got some postings from the past on WFMU's site, haven't you? Right. Um, and you can find my name on the left under listener Bob Purse's posts. Okay. And you've got some of your family's recordings on there, which it, people can listen to if they're interested. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much again. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. It's been great talking to you. Thank you.
Julie Andrews. <laughs> 